Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. So what's up, what's up, what's up, y'all? This is Classified. This is Mocha Only. This is Sean Price. Yeah, Ghostface Killer. This is Quake Matthews. What's up, I'm Brother Ali. Fight Diggy, Tribe Call Quest. Eloquent, man. What up, Styles P the Ghost. This is Ab Soul. This is K.O. And you listening to The Come Up Show, where that feel-good music lives. Hey. This is the show that you come up on, yeah. This is the spot that you come up strong. What's going on? Welcome to The Come Up Show podcast. Thank you for joining me. I'm Martin Bauman, and today I'm talking to one of my favorite Canadian MCs and producers, he calls Saga City his home. He's part of a group called the Smash Brothers, and he comes from a very musical family. He picked up his love of music from his father, who's a drummer. For the past month, he was across the water in the UK, and he just dropped a new project, too. It's called ICU. My guest today is Junior T. I caught up with him while he was overseas. We talk about everything from his travels to London, to things happening on Divine Time, to being rich in love, and much more. Take a listen. Well, let's start off. Tell me about what you've been doing out there and what you've been getting up to in London. Um, I jumped off a plane, put my stuff away in a hotel, and I went straight to a venue to rock a show. <laughs> first day. Wow. First day. Yeah, man. So um, rocked the show, which is like this thing called Vision Bombing out here, which is like um, it's basically like a, a video mixtape series that they do. It's run by like one of the main DJs from HFM, this dude named Mr. Dex. So he's been playing my music out here since Too Smooth dropped. So they was happy to get me out. They've been supporting me heavy. So I rocked that show. It was a pretty good turnout still. And like I got to meet some key people. Um, I got to meet Eric Lau, who's a really dope producer out here. Radio shows. After that, next day I did a radio show at HFM with Other Soul. Been linking up with people out here, like artists and stuff, which has been really, really cool. Tell, tell me about the artists and uh, and how this all started in the first place. What made you decide to jump across the water for a little bit. You know what? I really felt like I hit the ceiling in Toronto and in Canada. I felt like there's nothing more I could do. There was no avenues. There were no, like, as far as what I spent the last year learning, I realized that in order to grow my career past where I brought myself, I had to leave. Um, I, I've already gone to, like, the States, went to L.A. with the team the years before, started to build some roots over there. Um, I went to South by Southwest for the first time this year. Also went to LA on my own this year with my homie Tass. And um, I just realized that I, I've been wanting to go to Europe forever. I've been wanting to live for like the last six years and I finally had the means to do it. Somebody um, invested in me to send me. So I'm here. I decided to come through to a place where I feel they appreciate real music and I was right. So this is the, this is the first for you to being across there in, in the UK? Yeah, it's the first, man, that I'm half British. Tell me what's that been like in the... With the sights you've seen, or just the experiences of the music that you're that's surrounding you right now, I think it's uh, it's beautiful to see, man. Because one thing about UK is they've got a big urban culture, man. Like a lot of rappers get signed out here. Like that's a regular thing to get signed, and rappers getting dropped. It's like their industry is fully functional. Whereas in Toronto, there's absolutely no way to learn the machine because nobody's getting signed. <laughs> you know what I mean? So. There's a lot of guys out here that have like a lot of industry experience, but I guess the trade-off is not as many guys are as business savvy as far as all the layers of the business because they've never had to do it. Their label has always done it for them. Feel me? So I'm coming over there way more equipped with understanding what has to happen and who I need to know. You know what I mean? Now, have you been primarily in London or have you moved around at all? Um, I've pretty much stayed in London. 
I've gone I've gone out to Kent, which is like on the coast. Uh, my homegirl's helping me with some PR. She lives out there, so she brought me out there just to get like a little change of scene. Two hours out of the city, it was dope. But to be real with you, man, I'm on some tunnel vision shit, bro. I only have a month to make as much of an impact as possible. So that's just been my focus. Just studio, shows, radio, and meeting with people that are like the people out here to know. You know what I mean? So what kind of uh, connections have you made artist-wise or producers? Uh, any kind of studios that you've been working with out there? One of my close homies, um, Crispy Cuts, who actually does the hip-hop playlist for 22 tracks. Um, he works out of a dope studio called Alaska Studios, which is like a historic studio out here. So I got to build over there for a bit. Um, this artist out here named P.W. Lavish, he's also pretty established. He had me come through to his studio, produce some records over there. Him and I did a record together. There's two guys that I'm going to be doing projects with. You know, like I realized that when I came out here, there's like this dude named Omar who's been pretty much working my records over here since uh, I put out You and I. So when You and I came out, he serviced the single. He got it on like a whole bunch of radio shows. Like when Slacker came out here to do his tour, every single radio show was playing my record <laughs> and they loved yeah. the record. It was a trip for him because he's like, wow, it's everywhere. <laughs> you know what I mean? So he hooked me up with two artists, one guy named Benjamin A.D. And him and I are doing a whole EP together. Like we got crazy records. We're <laughs> shooting a video for one of them this weekend. Um, I linked up with this next guy named Scripture. And he's just retarded too. He's an MC producer slash bassist. Like, and he's right up my alley. Same kind of vibes, real dope. He laid like a whole bunch of bass down on a bunch of production for me out here. And him and I are going to basically do some J-Lib shit. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh, so yeah, you, you rap on each other's production basically, right? Yeah, but also we're thinking of just like even going all the way in and like collaborating on all the production because like the synchronicity is there. You know what I mean? One other thing that you've been involved in out there I saw a little bit of. Uh, tell me about Focus 15 and what that's about. Uh, Focus 15 is just some real stuff. Like all music aside... Like my my real reason for doing anything is just to be about change and to change things for the people because the people make the world go round. And um, I've always been active in community work. That's just a part of who I am. And a close friend of mine, Liam Barrington, this guy um, pretty much put me onto a lot of that way of life. The first time him and I worked together was with a thing we started called Turning the Tables, which is in conjunction with Schools Without Borders and Inner City Visions, which is like the predecessor of Remix. We went out to Cuba to build a studio for like the youth out there. And um, ever since then, him and I have just really been in touch. He's like a real anarchist, man. Like He's written books and doing his thing. So he's just out here just engaging the situation. So E-115 is like a bunch of single mothers that were being evicted out of this housing complex out here just so they could sell it to richer people. And the funny thing is, there's like so many housing complexes out here that are frigging empty, bro like hundreds and hundreds of units that are empty. So these like mothers all banded together to start this thing called E15 and they pretty much took over some of those units by force and straight occupied them because they're fully working and everything. You know what I mean? And they stopped a lot of people from getting evicted out of their homes, help families keep their homes and it's just people fighting for people and just seeing results. So what they were doing is every Saturday by Stratford Mall, they would just stand outside, put up like a table, have like all these flyers, talk on a megaphone just to get people engaged, I guess, or aware of what's happening. And the funny part was a lot of the people that they would stop and talk to were going through the exact same thing. Like, it's not just 
the poorer areas of London that's being gentrified. Like it's the whole of London. Like even the studio I went to, Alaska Studios, has been there for years. It's a staple for Jamaican music in London. They're kicking them out <laughs> mm-hmm. for the sake of real estate. You know what I mean? And that's commerce. It's not even like families. You feel I me? Mean? So like all I did is lend my time as a performer because instead of hearing like a megaphone for like two hours, you're hearing some nice, pleasant, relaxed, chill out music and people sure. would stop. You know what I mean? I wasn't even busking, but people were coming out giving me money and shit. <laughs> like 60 bucks, 80 pounds, just rapping. You know what I mean? Doing two songs. And like, that to me is me giving back. You know what I mean? I, I didn't even want them to promote my record. And I told them not to speak about my album. It's not about me. It's about just creating an atmosphere that allowed people to be more engaging with the information they were sharing. And that's what I did two weeks in a row, you know? You were talking a little bit about that trip to Cuba uh, with IC Visions. Tell me a little bit more about that and the history behind not only IC Visions, but that trip out there and, and what that was like, too. Going to Cuba was big. I went out there with Big Pops, um, Pops YYZ. There's a bunch of us, my homegirl Ice, Gavin. We pretty much went out there just to build a studio similar to IC Visions because we recognized the power it would have when you could just give um, like a hub to a community. What ended up happening, though, which was interesting, the association we partnered up with that allowed us to get our cultural visas, the Madiguera, they pretty much weren't going to give it to the hip-hop community. They were going to just hold on to it and just record nothing but like classical music and shit. And we found this out halfway through before we even started to bring the equipment over. And then we met this kid named Ali. And at the time, he was 16. And he was producing for 70% of Centro Havana's rap scene. One wow. kid. So we pretty much gave all the equipment to him. And then he was living in the hood. And if you know much about Cuban houses, like <clears throat> some houses don't have a ceiling in a big portion of the house, just like an open courtyard in the middle of the house. And that's where you put the studio. And like you could like scale the side of the house if you wanted. And they protected that shit. The whole community protected that shit. You know what I mean? And now this kid's like gone off to do great things. You know what I mean? So when you went down there, you went to Havana. You get, did you get to meet this guy at all? And uh, oh, what yeah, was that like? We met all those people. We, we, we physically brought the equipment to the hood. Like in the middle of the night, mans are walking around with studio monitors and computer shit. People had never <laughs> seen before. Didn't even feel scared at all. Like we're going to get jacked or nothing. It's just like a totally different vibe in Cuba. And they, they just understood what it was, what we were doing. We weren't doing anything other than giving back to the culture we love. And it's come back tenfold, man. It's been almost... Two years, I want to say, since we last cut up, when you and Crooklyn came to perform at the Outback Shack yeah, at, at Fanshawe yeah. College. What have you been up to since then? Pretty much producing my ass off, man. That's been the primary focus and is getting back to family life, just trying to be a better dad. Making a lot of music. In that time, I could say we decided to do the solo thing for building our own solo brand. So I spent a lot of that time understanding what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. And just learning. I wasn't trying to rush anything. So pretty much from then to now, just me learning how to do what I want to do, for lack of better words. How has uh, fatherhood changed your life and how maybe you, you approach music and your outlook on things too? Uh, it's changed everything. It's given me context to everything I do. You know, They say that parenthood always changes you. It's, it doesn't change everybody and doesn't change you in a, in a split second either. It's just about when certain things start to matter to you, it changes how you make decisions and why you make decisions. So I'd say that's how fatherhood has changed me. It's made me selfless. I'm a selfish person by nature. <laughs> and like, yeah. I think about my daughter before I make a choice or I think about my wife before I make a choice or I think, you know, 
my family is a part of every decision I make now. I want to go into a couple different influences of yours, uh, digging a little bit into the history as well. So let's start off with this one. Tell yeah. me about the significance of Most Def and Talib Kweli's Black Star album to you. Oh, man. That was the album that changed all of my lyrical content. That changed me like single-handedly. Like When you're a young artist and you're just rapping, following what you hear, you, you don't really understand the reality of the environments these people are describing. You know what I mean? And like my favorite rappers were like Boot Camp Click and like Helter Skelter, like real rugged stuff. You know what I mean? It still had lyrical merit, but I wasn't really connecting with the reality of the environments and the stories that are being told. And like to hear like an album like Black Star, it really made me realize that like, yeah, I can rap about my regular life and still have something to say. You know what I mean? And I'm, I was really big on like being the MC's MC and having bars, you know? And I realized like having bars was just having something real to say that mattered to me, you know? And th that's what that album did for me. One of the main songs on the album that really opened my eyes was Knowledge of Self, KOS. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that song was like bars for days and they're not even like two line setups, it's just like one line of just like straightforward knowledge. And I was like, yeah, it resonated with me and that's who I am now, you know? Do you lean one way towards being a most guy or a quali guy or what's your, uh, what's your preference? I'd say um, I'm a balance of both. <clears throat> I'm a fair balance of both because like I appreciate and I try to perform on like a lyrical depth like quali, but at the same time, I try to be as musical as most at all times. You know, I'm a musician first before I can be categorized into a style of musician, and I feel like that's what that tandem was. You grew up uh, in a household. Your father was a drummer. What kind of an impact did that have on you in terms of picking up music? Oh, that was the main ingredient, bro. Like, having that around. Like, I, I grew up in a household where there's, like, A-list artists coming through just, like, rock with my dad. Like, Deborah Cox was the singer for his main band. And, like, Oren Isaacs was one of the main players. And, like, what they were playing as a band is what influenced my style, uh, my tastes musically. You know what I mean? So they're playing a lot of SOS band. They're playing a lot of Slave, playing a lot of, like, Tom Brown so like that shit's like the foundation of my music. And I later followed my dad as a musician and played drums for like five years on my own. You know what I mean? Played drums for my church. So I feel my production sounds the way it does because I have a real rich musical understanding. It doesn't start in my teen years. Like I've been listening to music since I was a kid. You know what I mean? So it's a, it comes from a, an actual drum kit rather than somebody learning it on a drum machine or something like that. Oh, yeah. I've been playing real drums for a long time. I even sang in a choir, dog. Like, like my understanding <laughs> of music is real, you know? I didn't just, like, jump on this rap train for, like, social acknowledgement. Like, I have to do music to feel okay. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Okay, so you were growing up in Mississauga. Uh, yeah. At the time, Master T in the mix was big for all of the city and across across Canada, really, too. Yeah. How influential was that for you? That was where the dream of being an MC kind of started. Because then I started to realize that, you know, my taste for, like, expressing myself musically started to gravitate to MCing and rapping when I started to see these different variations of music I grew up on. And uh, it resonated with me. And it just made it seem not so far away. You know, when you have Master T kind of like headlining it and like highlighting Toronto guys doing the thing. And I was bumping a lot of like Project Bounce and Master Plan Radio and all that shit. So just to know that the culture was here kind of gave me hope that like, okay, I could actually do this from here. I spoke to Rich Kid 
I want to say last November around this time, he was telling you about how he came up admiring you as a freestyle battler. Uh, yeah, yeah. Tell me about battling at the South Common bus terminal. Oh, man. That's really like the beginnings of Junior T on like the grand scale when I realized that like, yeah, I had some. Like, mans would travel all over, all from all ends of Saga to come battle me because they heard that I had the crown, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I was like, I'd eat madman's food. That was just really what it was, you know what I mean? Like, I took out some of the older mans too, you know what I mean? Plus, I was like new to that block when I moved through because I came from Woodlands and moved to like South Common. And then after, once I went to Clarkson, then I, I met like this rap community, if you will, and they would all congregate at the mall. So I'm like, all right. I'm coming for everybody's head. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, like, I was battling all those guys. And Rich was the youngin' coming up. You know what I mean? He was, like, close friends with the youngest on my team who's, like, no longer with us on the vibe. But, yeah, man, he was inspired by us killing it. And Rich was actually, like, my sidekick for a long time. <laughs> like, once he got serious with rap and all that stuff, and he was on house arrest. And he did, like, two joints on his house arrest mixtape at my studio, at my crib. And I was like, yo, this kid's nice, you know what I mean? So when I started to get more shows, like, yo, come out. And half of them, like, backed me up on the show. You could probably even see some footage on YouTube of him backing me up and shit. Like, yeah, he's been my brother from time, you know what I mean? Who were the sort of central figures in that battle, those battle days? Who were you battling against? Oh, uh, like, White Fang, Chuggo. I battled um, Nameless, I think. I battled Organic. In the finals, I battled JD Era. Like, guys that were really battlers battled me. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So, like, it was cool. That organic battle was, like, decided to be a win on his behalf. But because I got disqualified for saying some line about puss. So I said puss, like, pink lotion or some shit. I got disqualified. But he gave me friggin', like, half the prize money because he believed I won. You know what I'm saying? That was my first time meeting Organic in Brampton back in the day. And, like, ever since then, like, he's been, like, one of the closest dudes in the scene to me, man, because he's got heart. He's a real human being. You know? So this was a this was not just a bus terminal battle. This was somewhere else. Like there were there were rules attached to, to some of these battles. Like I've battled in battle battles before too. You know what I mean? Like I beat man's from freaking point blank at a car show battle. Like I was battling for real. That was my shit. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Let's go through some other history. What can you tell me about Silver Fox and Three Five Player? Mm, that's my creed, brother. That's my first family in the game. Like Three Five Player is the family that Smash Brothers comes from. 3-5 Player is basically a crew that started in, a, in my complex when I moved to South Common. So that the complex is called 3500 Glen Aaron. So we just pretty much made 3-5. And we, we called it Player because we considered ourselves like players of the game. You know what I mean? We're officially in the game. We work. It's a grind. You know what I mean? So that's like 2000. Like 2000 we started that squad. And... um. Just been building, and I recruited Crook after we dropped our first mixtape. Like, I came by Arendelle School, just hustling my tapes as I was, seeing the guy on the bridge, and he just looked at the freaking CD with an awe, and he's like, yo, give me 10 of these, bro. And I'll have the freaking money for you tomorrow. I'm like, yeah, right. He's like, yeah, bro. Gave him the CDs, came back the next day, he handed me my money. I was like, for real? Come join the man then. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? And he joined the squad, and Silver Fox is basically our DJ sound. That's like our DJ crew within the fam. They used to do a radio show on sensimedia.net for like six years. And then I just like to keep it original fan, man. So those are my dudes forever, you know? What significance does the Masonic Lodge in Mississauga have to you? <laughs> That's technically our first show ever in Mississauga. Technically. Like that was like 
Big Pops even performed that day. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Pops was rapping that day. So Pops performed, Crook performed with his bro, and I performed Dolo with my team. And that was just kind of like the beginnings of us like all realizing there's more of us in the city that are actually serious about doing music. So, yeah. Is that a common thing to have artists perform at the, at the Lodge? Yeah, because Mississauga has no stages you can book out to do a show. There's a frigging monopoly out here by Rob Taggart. So if you're not a part of the Rob Taggart talent agency, you can't book a stage for yourself. Even though I've thrown shows with 500 plus people and I got videos and signed papers to prove it, they won't give me a stage. All right, let's talk about this project, I See You. It came out beginning in November. Tell me, I guess, the genesis of this project, when it all started. You know what? It started that two years ago, man. Pretty much when I started to work on <clears throat> just Junior. Um, I started the year, that year, just producing out of Dreamhouse Studios. Like three months, me and Guzo were going in heavy. I was just on my like Quincy Jones productions, bringing in mad musicians and shit. It was just me working, making a whole bunch of music and just trying to do things on my own. And then times passed. <clears throat> and then recently, I had a conversation with Addy, like around the time I was dropping Too Smooth. And um, I was gearing up to drop every day. And he was just like, yo, don't just drop these singles. Because like, what they learned from the Rich Kid campaign was when they were putting out all those singles and they're getting those good placements for the single releases, like on Vibe, MTV, and all those things. All those songs weren't leading up to a project. So all those songs just disappeared in time. You know what I mean? People didn't hold on to it. So he's just like, just even though you're going to put it a collage of music, Junior, you might as well just put it out to become a project and people will hold on to that music more. And I just took his advice and I slept on it until I found the right title. And then it hit me one morning and then IC was born. I pretty much had the music that I was already going to put together for it, like mad songs. But the title kind of helped me curate the vibe. You know what I mean? It was weeks upon weeks upon weeks getting the right arrangement and also finishing a lot of that music too once I decided what I wanted to put on it. It wasn't so calculated. It was really, really natural how it came to be. So I just like went with the flow of things and then it manifested accordingly. What is it like for you to have that project come out at a time when you are across, you know, across the world, like not even in your hometown as the, as the project drops? Mm. It was weird. It was weird at first because um, I'm a control freak. I do everything myself, like literally. I'm sending out my press releases to all these blogs. I'm organizing my rollout. I'm getting my artwork done. I mixed and mastered my whole album. You know what I mean? I booked myself. Me too. As far as like creating or doing the communications between here and the places I'm traveling to, that's me. You know? I guess it was kind of nerve wracking because I wanted to make sure I had somebody in town to hold shit down for me like I wanted to. But it also made me realize that like sometimes you just got to let things go. And let it just organically spread on its own. And I also felt that it was kind of like a statement. Like, yeah, Toronto, I've been there. I do my thing. For those that have been supporting me, you'll support me over here. But, like, it's time for me to go and, like, show whoever I'm meeting out here how serious I am about my grind. You know what I mean? And a lot of people were impressed with the fact that, like, I picked up my CDs the day I flew out, bro, at 11 a.m., bought my ticket three hours before my flight left. <laughs> put 70 CDs in my friggin' suitcase hoping they wouldn't stop me in the, at the border when I got in you know what I mean and then my family shipped me out another 140 like I'm just here grinding bro I just needed to do it for myself really one of the things that uh, strikes me about this project the ICU is you know you opening things up with this Bob Marley quote mm-hmm. he's talking about um, I don't have that type of richness my, my richness is life forever yeah uh, tell me about the significance of that to you that's actually what I live by. 
I've never been a rich person. Never have. You know, I've always had enough to survive. Money's always showed it up, showed up when I needed it. You know what I mean? Even me being on this trip is a product of that, you know? But if there's anything I can always claim to be rich in, and it's always proven itself to me, that I've always been rich in love. And rich is a kind of, being rich in love is something that you can't just acquire physically. Someone can't just hand you a bunch of love and you'll have that. It's how you've spent your life. It's how you've treated people. And um, I've always felt that I was rich in love. And in a time where rap is at an all-time high of vanity, and people feeling like to be rich in things is going to bring you happiness. And I've been broke all my life, B. And people tell me I smile all the fucking time. So I guess I'm doing something right. You know what I mean? And I need to find a strong person that said that. And I just found that miraculously. And it just it encompassed it all in a nutshell. I wanted people to know out the gate, this is not about your usual rap shit. This is about love and things that matter in life. And that's all the album's about. <laughs> Nothing else. You know what I'm saying? You might get a little bit of talk here about girls or whatever. Because, yes, I love women, B. <laughs> Those are the things in life that make me happy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Speaking on love, you have a line in the song, How Can I, where you say, Seems love don't visit where I'm living at. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about that line. Um, I wrote that record like shortly after my grandmother died. And like crazy things happen when people die and they've got a lot of earthly possessions. Some people's true colors come out or some people develop new colors. And I started to see ugly sides of a lot of people in my family that I, I consider to be the anchor. And it was just really bothering me. Like, the household I was living in in Saga, before I moved in with my wife, was just, like, the energy was dark. My grandmother's house was always, like, radiant and really bright and warm. And after she left, like, it felt like love was not coming there at all. <laughs> at all, bro. So, like, I wrote that at a, at a dark time for me. But that was a little bit of a release. And that was really, really honest as far as, like, what I'm talking about in that first verse. It's all about me living at the house. And the second verse is all about my daughter's mom. You know what I mean? Because I wrote... You and I about her, and she didn't give a damn. You know what I mean? Kind of fucked me up. You know what I'm saying? Because that was me being honest. I didn't write the song because I wanted to have a girl track on my roster. No, I wrote that song out of like how I felt. You know what I mean? So, yeah, that's what that was still. Tell me about uh, what, what will last with you from your grandmother, the, the type of influence she had on you. She was my first believer in my family. Before my mom, before my dad, before anybody. She was the first one Like when I finished or when I was going to Trevis. Um, a close friend of mine was selling his whole studio setup because he was becoming a dad and he was selling it for 3500 And I'm big on numbers. So I'm like, oh, 3500 <laughs> It's a fucking sign. I need that shit. So I went to my grams. I'm like, grams, this guy's selling a studio for 3500 It's everything I need to get started. And she didn't even blink. I don't even know where she got the money. She just handed it to me. It's like, go do what you got to do. You know what I mean? So like... She's just really been holding it down. She's all over the album. A lot of the songs, I make little references to her here and there because like, I know she's been the one rooting for me to get this far and I can't quit because of how much she believes in me. So that's what it is. This project that you've dropped is, is sort of gearing up towards a, a larger release, which will be Divine Time. Yeah. Tell me about that. It's going to be a process. I, I needed to put this one out because I, wa I wanted people to realize like, you can't put me in a box. Just because I'm a rapper that produces, don't expect the rap album that I produce. When, ever. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I produce in the traditional sense. I produce like Quincy Jones. I don't produce like Primo. You know what I mean? I commission musicians. We vibe in a studio. We write music like Stevie Wonderwood in, in the 70s. You know what I mean? But I also possess those other skill sets. So when I put out ICU, 
that's why there's like some funk music. That's why there's some 90s R&B and some slower soul. I wanted that. But my Divine Time project that I'm leading towards, I want that to be Junior T speaking about his life in entirety. You know what I mean? Because I feel like that title encompasses my life as a whole. Everything has always happened on divine time, never my time. And there's going to be a project in between, which is going to be an instrumental project called Porno Mix. And um, that's all instrumentals that I sampled 70s porn. <laughs> yeah, man. And it's spelled P-O-U-R, comma, no mix. So like poor okay, yeah. mix, you know what I'm saying? So that's going to come first. And then the divine time's gonna come later, but I just want people to get dimensions of me as a person. So that's why I'm dropping porno mix as well, because I, I fucking love sex, and I'm not afraid to say that shit. I'm in a polyamorous relationship. I've got a wife, and I'm allowed to have many more women. That's just a part of my life and who I am. You know, what I mean, it's not a braggadocious shit. It's just the fucking truth. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so all these projects should be just an honest reflection of me. That's it. You're talking about things that are uh, happening on divine time, things kind of falling into place, not on your own time, but as they <laughs> should fall. Give me some more examples, if you look back on your life, of things unfolding when perhaps you wouldn't have planned for them to happen, but, you know, just things happening on divine time. Check it out. So the very, very first Smash Brothers video, What You Need, What You Want, was a product of me experiencing divine time. So we were going to shoot that video with one of Crook's boys from school. Guy came over to the crib, set up like some kind of cheesy green screen in the garage, shot this footage, and I was just like, yo, whatever. At the time, I was still working with Turning the Tables that had a partnership with School Without Borders. So School Without Borders had like access to these broadcast quality cameras, right? Because this is before DSLR. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to rent one of these cameras for a weekend. And I'm just going to get random B-roll footage that we could chop in between this video. So I go to this Necro concert, Canadian Music Week, okay? Opera House. My homegirl's the bartender at Opera House, and she lives above Opera House. So any concert at Opera House that's happening, I get to just walk in that bitch. So I walk in, and I walk right to the backstage. Dude at the door is like, oh, I can't let you in. I'm like, yo, you see the fucking size of my camera, bro? You think I'm supposed to be in the front of the stage? It's lets me backstage, okay? <laughs> so I walk backstage now. First two people I see are Eternia and DJ Law. And they're like, yo, dude, how'd you get back here? I'm like, yo, it's me, guy. I could get anywhere, guy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And Brent, who runs Just Entertainment who's the fucking coordinator of the whole show. He's like, oh, Jude, you got backstage. Good job. Do whatever you want. You know what I mean? So now I'm filming this crowd, trying to punk this crowd to chop into my video. <laughs> and this guy to my left looks at my monitor, and it's mad red. And there's no white light. There's no red light on stage, but my monitor's showing a lot of red. He's like, yo, bro, how come your monitor's red? And I'm like, yo, I'm baited. And just tell the guy the truth. I'm like, look, I'm a rapper. I don't even shoot video, but I'm trying to shoot some B-roll footage to chop into this video. Because I think this guy's going to fuck it up. He's like, oh, man, you're that serious, bro? All right, bro. I'm going to shoot a video for you, bro. And at the time, like, ask anybody. Like, I changed my number like a drug dealer. This guy hunted me down for a whole fucking year, bro. He got a hold of me six days before he wanted to shoot the video on Facebook. And he ended up shooting our video for free on the red. Wow. I time, my nigga. That's just one story. I got many stories yeah. like that. Like, un even last night was a defined time story, bro. Last night, I was supposed to go to Boiler Room with Lily Mercer, who's, like, a really big personality out here in the hip-hop scene. Then she hits me up on some, like, yo, I couldn't get a plus one for you to come. And since I'm not going to be able to roll with you, I'm going to stay home. I'm like, guy, cool. So, you know Element? Element? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, we're sitting here like, fuck, we're not going to get to go. So, I'm, like, rolling up another spliff, whatever. I get this text message. And my boy's like, yo, 
Mr. Dex has a plus two for boiler room and there's no one to give it to. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so we go to the freaking boiler room with Joey Badass. And I tell this guy, yo, I'm going to meet someone for boiler room for sure. Go to the front. Apparently, they must have closed off the door, but the girl at the front door thought I looked like some dude before. She was like, no, he's staff. Let him in. <laughs> Let's me in. She comes inside. I thank her for letting me in. Give her a CD. And I'm like, I want to meet someone from Boiler Room. My homie Louis there talking to this dude. He's like, yo, you got to meet Errol. Yo, Errol, this is Junior T, blah, blah, blah. She comes by and she's like, ah, oh, I was going to introduce you to this guy, but this is the main guy from Boiler Room. And I'm already talking to the nigga. Yeah. See what I'm saying? Divine time. Yeah. <laughs> Live this shit, bro. I live it every fucking day, bro. I think my whole trip has been that. Like, how my re- song ended up on Capital Extra, which is like the biggest radio station next to CBC. I got played by the main DJ, Ross Kwame, on some random. <laughs> mm-hmm. like, bro, I don't know what other way to put it. You know what I'm saying? Thinking about things like that, what has been the most surreal moment that music has led to in your life? The irony of the first real Smash Brothers show in Mississauga. Like, we never got booked for any show. And shortly after we dropped the Think It's a Game album, got so much good acclaim, we got booked to perform at Celebration Square in Mississauga, opening up for Classified. And we were on stage performing for 6,000 people for our first show in Mississauga. <laughs> we jump off stage, there's like herds of kids running over to buy albums and get their like signatures and shit. Like, yeah, that was it. That's the craziest one by far. That about does it for me. Any final, anything else you want to say before we wrap things up? I want to just say uh, big ups to everybody that's been holding down Junior T and supporting real music and supporting Come Up Show because you guys are making sure people get to find out about quality music and give them options and not just feel stuck with the fucking radio shit because radio everywhere fucking sucks, bro. Everywhere. I'm in England. still the same shit. Even in BBC? Yeah. Yeah, No, BBC is just like they're unique because they've got tastemakers uk has a reputation of tastemaking that to uphold but like i got played on the uk flow bro you know what i'm saying like flow doesn't play nothing nice they just play like all the same bullshit over and over and over again somehow i squeezed through on that station which is like impossible Mm -hmm. (laughs) they played me on capital extra g (laughs) you know what i'm saying so yeah big ups to you guys man well, there you have it. If you want to know more about Junior T, go to thecomeupshow.com. We've got lots of music to check out there. If you enjoyed the show, help us out. Subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on SoundCloud. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, too, at The Come Up Show. If you're in Toronto over the next couple weeks, Janae Aiko is coming on December 18th. She's also bringing along SZA and the Internet. Watch out for that. That's it for this week. Hope you enjoyed the show. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. 